TAFS Talks listeners, math is tough for many students, but when is it time to develop an intervention? The FAM is your answer. It's a comprehensive math test that helps you identify specific subtypes of dyscalculia, which enables you to create more targeted interventions to better benefit your students. A screening form lets you quickly screen for math learning disabilities, and you can generate scores and interpretations online via PAR iConnect. Learn more at parinc.com backslash FAM or contact your PAR assessment consultant, Theo Miron at T-M-I-R-O-N at parinc.com. Hello and welcome to the Task Talks podcast, where we discuss the goings-ons in school psychology in the state of Texas. Uh, I'm going to be your lead host today. We have a couple of absences, but we have some great guests for you. And so I am Kia Sala, and then with me is Brooke. Brooke, how are you doing today? Howdy, everybody. I am doing well. This is uh, this is going to be a great episode. We're so glad you're joining us. Yeah, I, I think you'll be okay with just um, Brooke and I being hosts because we have an all-star cast of guests for y'all. But before we get to that, we do want to just share a little bit about ourselves as we tend to do. And so a quick discussion. So Brooke, for our topic for today, I want you to tell me what's um, something you learned or a piece of advice that really changed your life? Oh, um, I'm going to, I don't, uh, I don't refer to, I don't cite my in-laws very often, but um, <laughs> not without um, them, it, only if they can't find out, right? That's but, right. That's yeah. right. So, but uh, the chances of them listening to this show are, are slim. <laughs> um, but uh, I think like I, I look back on um, mine and Amanda's early marriage and, and one of the things that they gave us advice about was that uh, before, well, and they, they'd suggested, you know, maybe for, well, <laughs> um, just regarding our finances, um, that before making a, a big purchase, we should take a night to sleep on it. Um, and I think that has saved Amanda and well, it saved me a lot of money because Amanda's a very impulsive um, <laughs> <laughs> buyer of items. And so we do have an agreement that uh, if something exceeds a certain amount that we uh, we take a night to, to deliberate and, and to think about it. So that's saved. That has, that has, uh, been life-changing for me <laughs> and it's kind of simple too. So just kind of practical common sense wisdom. So how about you, Kia? Yeah. I like that's easy advice to then implement. Um, it's funny cause mine that I came up with is also kind of in the financial realm. Uh, cause when I was trying to figure out, uh, what to do with money, cause when I, I grew up very poor, um, and so now that I had money, I'm like, well, how do I, what do I do with money to not like lose it all? And when I was reading, one thing that really stuck with me that I read one time is someone said, you can have anything you want. You just can't have everything you want. And while it was about personal finance, I really started, started to apply that kind of principle just to my life as well. And the idea about how do I want to spend my time? Because that's probably our most precious resource. Um, and then thinking about the fact that I'm not going to get to do everything that I could possibly want to do in my lifetime. So I need to really figure out what are the things I want to focus on so I can get the things I do want, because I could have pretty much anything I want, um, but I'm not going to be able to do anything and everything I want. And so it's just a really good lens um, for me to think about those things. Mm, prioritization. Ex exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
All right. Well, uh, enough about us. We're going to move on and use all of the time we can for our amazing guests here. So for y'all who have been um, looking forward to this, we got our our trio for today talking about the history of school psychology in Texas. One of the things we want to bring you in this podcast is an understanding about where we've been so we can take a look and understand where we're trying to go. And so with that in mind, we have a great group of legends of school psychology here. Uh, we have Dr. Dan Miller, Dr. Gail Sheremy, and Dr. Ginger Gates who are joining us. Welcome everybody. So glad you're joining us today. Thank you for having us. Ginger, why don't you kick us off? Uh, just kind of tell us what you've been up to and uh, Dr. Gates. And, and uh, one of the things that, that I think our listeners have really enjoyed hearing from our guests is how did you come to find school psychology or did school psychology find you? <laughs> That's very interesting. Um, I School psychology definitely found me because when I went into school psych, I didn't even know it existed. My whole life, my dad is a psychologist taught at the university, and I've always wanted to be a psychologist, but I didn't have a clue that anything existed other than a traditional clinical type of role. And so off I go to graduate school in clinical psychology, uh, you know, ready to change the world one person at a time. And uh, in my first practicum, spent lots of time in a little room with adults who never, who talked a lot about wanting to change, but never did anything about what, changing and never changed their behavior. And I thought, man, there's got to be a better way to help people than this. This is, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And I thought, you know what? I think kids are more malleable. I, I, maybe, I, maybe working with kids would make sense. And at the University of Southern Mississippi, where I was at the time, they happened to have a, a NASP approved school psychology program. And so I went over, I switched over. And what I love about the field of school psychology is that it's not something you do alone in a room with somebody, that it's, it's a collaborative effort. It's a team approach. And I think you have a much better chance of making change when it's part of a team. Mm, that's so important. I was actually thinking about that yesterday. Um, I bumped into a former student of mine at Walmart, and he's now 24 years old. And, um, you know, I haven't seen him in six or seven years when he graduated from school. And he was so just appreciative and grateful and, and thankful. And I, and all I could think about is the number of times that we sat, sat around a table with teachers and principals and administrators uh, helping this kid. And, um, and, and then just to, to see that, man, things are going good for, for him. Like it really worked. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I know a lot yeah. of brain power behind the scenes goes into making those changes. It's not always visible up front. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what are you up to these days? You've been, uh, you've been a special ed director. You've been a, a school psychologist. You um, have worked at the service center. I've, I've been partner everything you can be as a school psychologist, just so you know. <laughs> um, I, I retired three months before COVID hit. And so pretty much my retirement has been sheltering in place and, uh, and, and being angry at those people who didn't. Um, but it's also given me a lot of time to reflect back on my work career and decisions made or things I would change, uh, relationships that I made, things like that. So I'm, I'm doing reflecting, but a little bit of consulting, but uh, mostly I'm 
looking forward to being able to be uh, not um, out in public and and not having to be sheltering in place. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're getting close to that coming up soon. I think so. I think so. Well, Dr. Miller, how about you? What? Uh, how? How did you find school psychology? Well, it's still. I still think it's one of those hidden secrets. Um, When I was an undergrad at the University of Cincinnati and getting ready to graduate with a baccalaureate degree, you know, what the heck are you gonna do with a baccalaureate degree? And everybody talked about clinical and counseling, clinical and counseling, no one mentioned school psychology. And I'll date myself, but they used to publish things, APA used to publish this directory of all the graduate training programs in the United States. And I got that. And I was thumbing through and I knew I wanted to work with children and families and I kind of fell into school psychology and applied, got accepted in several programs, uh, went to Miami University and really enjoyed that level of training. And then I worked in the field for a number of years and I got restless. Um, I didn't feel like I had all the training that I needed and I went back to Ohio State University and did kind of a one-of-a-kind doctoral program, a blend between electrophysiology, school psychology, and neuropsychology, and and came to TWU and was there for 25 years, and I can't leave. So that's that's my <laughs> career, basically. So are you still teaching at uh, Texas Women's? No, I tried to retire in about five years ago. That lasted about three months. Um, mm-hmm. Dr. Woodcock, the Richard Woodcock of you know the name you know very well. Uh, gave $10 million to the university, the largest gift ever, and asked if I come out of retirement, I didn't even get to use my golf clubs, and be the executive director of the Woodcock Institute. So now I work 30 hours a week, they let me do it from home, and I give away money. So it's really, really nice. And it's nice to, and it's a very great honor to help preserve his legacy, which is really what it comes down to. So he just turned 93 years old and, you know, he's going strong, keeping me still busy. That's what I'm doing. And then what about, uh, what about School Neuropsych Press? Well, not School Neuropsych Press, that's Steve Pfeiffer's uh, group, but I I still do a training program in School Neuropsychology. Um, It's evolved over time. I mean, COVID really changed things. We used to require a face-to-face meeting in November and then one at the end of the program. Well, now everything's online. As a result of everything being online, our enrollment has gone nuts. Uh, people are really interested in that level of training. Um, we train a lot of people in California for some reason. I, I think that, um, and we get a lot of mid-career people that you know they're kind of frustrated with the traditional refer, test, and place types of things. They want to delve more into in-depth assessment to really figure out what to do to help kids better. And that's what we teach them how to do. It's it's sad that we still have to use that that phrase, uh, <laughs> refer, test, and place, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you for, for joining us, uh, Dr. Miller. And uh, you can't be a school psychologist in Texas and not have uh, been trained in some level by Dr. Gail Sheremy. So welcome, Gail. We're glad you're here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So how did school psychology find you? Well, I have basically the same type of story. I began my professional career as a teacher, taught in public schools for a couple of years, went back to get my master's degree. And at the time, 
got a job at a special school, which at that time was called a rehabilitation counselor. And we worked with kids who could not make it in the public school system. Now, again, this is before all of the requirements and protections of special ed. And so uh, the clientele was, were, were kids that were intellectually disabled. We had a sheltered workshop and one third of the clientele came from juvenile justice. So I was considered to be a counselor. So I had been a teacher for two years and I was a counselor. And there was a guy that came and, and uh, although I did all the interviews to get the kids in, he did all the testing. And in my master's program, I of course had taken intellectual assessment and so forth and became very interested in that. So I was like, how do you get to be that? Well, very much like, you know, Dan and Ginger, I didn't know anything about school psych. So I applied to uh, several programs, several doctoral programs in counseling psychology. And of course did not get in and got a really nice letter uh, from one of the schools saying, you know, we would really like to have you, you know, and so forth, but your letter doesn't match what we do. We're a counseling psychology program and you want a school psychology program. And I was like, well, what is that? So I checked into it and then the rest is history. I went to the University of Southern Mississippi in school psych and, and got my degree there. Um, but I, I think that for people of our generation, School psychology just wasn't spoken about. And you had an interest in working with kids. You had an interest in working in schools. Um, and I think at that time, school psychology, although you know there were obviously programs, it wasn't as well known. I don't know if it'll make you feel any better or any worse, Dr. Sherry, but I, don't think, <laughs> I still think school psychology is still not talked about. Because <laughs> um, most of our guests share a similar story of backdooring their way or, you know, tripping and falling into school psychology later in life. If we ever get a guest that talks about wanting to be a school psychologist and playing school psychologist when they were like five, um, I'm going to be shocked. Um, hasn't happened yet. Um, They'd have to be really young. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think we're getting closer. Um, you know, I, I think I've, I've seen more graduate applications recently. Um, from individuals who who say, um, you know, I have a, a parent in the special ed field, and and they said, if you're interested in psychology, you should go to school psychology. So, or I have a, a sibling with a disability who's been served by a school psychologist, and so I would like to become a school psychologist. So I think we're, I think they're, it's getting a little bit better. You know, been in the field for a long period of time. When you start training uh, people's children, yes, uh, yes and that, <laughs> that starts to happen. So, um, and they're they're the best advocates for school psychology, really. And so, I, I think, and obviously, part of that is we're a young field, you know, relative to a lot of others. And so, I think one of the questions we wanted for this panel is. Most of us think about the LSSP, the Licensed Specialist in School Psychology, but that is not the birthplace of school psychology in Texas. It was being practiced before. So what was what was that like for the, the school psychology landscape prior to the LSSP? When I moved to Texas, uh, there was no real credential, in my opinion, for school psychologists. What had to happen is technically you had to be licensed by the team 
SBP as either a licensed psychologist or a licensed psychological associate. Then you applied to TEA if you wanted to work in schools and you were called an associate school psychologist if you were at the master's level or a school psychologist if you were at the doctoral level. And the requirements were that you had to take four extra classes and they were education related classes. And then you could get your TEA certificate. So the only route to getting a certificate under TEA was first going through TSBP. And there was really no, in my opinion, there wasn't really a group of people that even identified themselves as school psychologists. What I found is that there were psychologists who worked in schools, but not school psychologists. Mm. And in my training, that's not how it was done. You know, we were school psychologists. We had levels of expertise that, that merged psychology and education that, that could, did consultation and, and so forth and intervention and, and assessment. And, and so, it took a while for that to change, obviously. Um, and that was how people were credentialed. Mm. Dan might want to add some. Yeah, I think that I, I, I do presentations on this. I used to, and I have a slide that says, well, the real school psychologist, please stand <laughs> up. Because it was so confusing to the uh -huh. public in terms of, well, what title are you using today? Um, and I think that the other issue that was really um, became pressing is what was the recognized entry level of training that you had to have in order to be working independently in the schools? And that really was at the doctoral level. And that created a lot of uh, concern. Um, this was at the time in the early, well, late 1980s, early 1990s when Remember, the NCSP was being born at this time. Mm -hmm. People are being grandparented in, and Texas had no idea what to do with the NCSP. That was a big fight that we had. Um, but also that whole issue of having requiring a doctorate, or if you were an associate school psychologist or a licensed psychological associate, you had to work under supervision of somebody that was a licensed psychologist. And I think it would, it's real fair to also just spend a couple minutes talking about when IDEA got uh, authorized in 1975, they required that every state had an assessment specialist identified in the state. So the state of Texas said, no, wait a minute, we don't have the resources to have a doctoral level person in every single public school of the state. They created the educational diagnostician category, and that was the, that was why we have educational diagnosticians in the state. Um, and that was, uh, from me coming from Ohio, that was an unusual critter, <laughs> an unusual certification that it really I did not get used to for a long period of time. But there was a lot of diversity in terms of who could call themselves a school psychologist during that time period. It's very very confusing. Yeah, one thing I want to add to that is when I moved here and, you know, got the, the issue of, you know, you have to go through TSBP, then you go through TEA and so forth, you, and you had to do those four extra classes, you literally 
could be an associate school psychologist or a school psychologist at doctoral level for certification under TEA and never have done a practicum or internship in a public school. That's right. So that's why I say what we had is a, a group of people who predominantly identified as psychologists and then they happened to work in schools. And that I believe needed to change to create a group of people that had professional identity. Uh, as Dan said, the change started, I guess, with the creation of the NCSP in the late 80s. And then TA acknowledged the NCSP in, I think, what was that, 91 or something of that nature. And they, they acknowledged that you could just go straight to being TEA certified with your NCSP and not have to do the roundabout way. And so I think that was a major milestone in the history. And it's very important as Dan alluded to, and I'm sure we'll talk about later, is although TEA acknowledged the NCSP as a direct route to certification, we couldn't use it when we got to the LSSP. <laughs> And, and so the struggles were always about title, about what you're going to call yourself about. Are you certified? Are you licensed? Who's the governing body? Uh, you know, that was the initial struggle. Uh, but that struggle is what led to a lot of the compromises we had to make when we, of course, passed the LSSP. I think that there was also, the way I viewed it, I viewed it as a, a very restricted role and function in the state when I arrived mm -hmm. in 1990. And what I mean by that is because there were educational diagnosticians, educational diagnosticians were largely responsible for seeing children that were suspected of having a learning disability or intellectual disability. And school psychologists were frequently pigeonholed into, it was psychiatrists, psychologists, and all these other credentialed people that were allowed to do an emotionally disturbed evaluation, but you had to have a signature of somebody that had a PhD. So the thing that I always remember, Gail, that is just absolutely appalling is people would see a child, uh, a licensed psychological associate or somebody at that level would see somebody, write up a report, they would federal express their report mm -hmm. to somebody across the state who never saw the child, who would sign the report and get paid for it. And that was the state of practice that was taking place prior to 1990. It was, really it was pretty lucrative for those people. I mean, oh, they, I think that's why they fought so hard when change was coming, because it was extremely lucrative. You know, I, I certainly uh, agree with everything you guys have said in terms of what it looked like when I came in 1986. Um, I, I thought it was a very, psychology in the schools in Texas was a very clinically oriented, had a clinical philosophy, like Gail said, not where you were a school psychologist and your training was in education and in the field of psychology. Um, what it, what it, what I was surprised by was what that then made schools expect from a school psychologist. They look, they looked for a very clinically oriented model, and when you didn't do that they were surprised, but then I found that then they were very appreciative of that when they found somebody who was willing to get in there and, and 
quote unquote, get their hands dirty and model a lesson or model a behavior intervention technique or, you know, spend time in the classroom and with the parents and whatever, uh, and, and understood the educational system, that was like eureka for for the school districts is like oh my gosh you can do that and so i thought that was pretty liberating as we trained our schools what to expect from a school psychologist versus a psychologist who specialized in something else but just happened to be contracting with the school system you know as, as dan said well of course we had the ncsp credential i think that started out in the 89 or something and then 91 we had you know Texas allowing the NCSP for a direct route. And then there were a couple of other changes uh, in 94 where OSEP said you really can't have dual certification just based on a credit, you know, just based on a degree. You know, we had all of these things going on. At the time, though, we still were not a cohesive group. Yeah, that that did not happen. And I really don't think, you know, the I know we're going to talk about how we got the LSSP because I know Dan and I were at the Senate and we've tested we testified before the board of education, all these things, higher coordinating boards and, and all that. But but before that, we didn't have that cohesion. We were a division under TPA. And by the way, very stepchild yeah. division. Um, and I was a director of that division. <laughs> um and so, you know, I mean, I was a director one year, Ginger was a director one year, you know, but it was very much not, again, school psych and definitely doctoral, you know. And so it was the creation. I mean, you know, we had all these other things going on, you know, the NCSP, the direct route, the OSEP letter in 94 and so forth. But the real thing that provided that was TASP. Yes, you know, and in my opinion, there would be no task without Dan Miller. Yes. yes. And we, we definitely want to hear about that because we know y'all have all been heavily involved in TASP and, and that's why we brought you on this podcast um, among all our accomplishments. But we want to hear certainly about the origin story of TASP in, in addition. So can y'all talk a little bit about the, the beginnings of TASP and how that supported this transition in the field? It really quite honestly, came about because I was being incredibly selfish. And what I mean by that is I was practicing as a school psychologist in Ohio, and I was a rural school psychologist. And my only support system was the Ohio School Psychology Association. And they had fall conferences, spring conferences. Um, it was just an incredible uh, support system for somebody where N of one in a, in a school district. And when I came to Texas, I looked for that same level of support. And it's like, I remember going to my first TPA conference and it was like, you're kidding me. I, I looked at the program and it was like, there was like maybe one session that had the word child in it. Um, and it's like, well, how am I supposed to get my CEUs? You know, I need to grow professionally as well. And there's an organization in the state, and I honestly don't know if they're still operating, they probably are, the Regional Association of School Psychologists, the DFW mm -hmm. Association of School Psychologists. And I was at TWU and I was an assistant professor and they, I said, you know, this would be a great thing for us to do. Why don't we host, you know, one of those meetings on campus? And we actually agreed to do it in conjunction with Denton ISD. 
And we were brainstorming topics. And the topic that we came up with is the pros and cons. We were gonna hold a panel discussion of which Gail was a member of. And Joseph Hamlers was a member of, he was a representative from NASP. And mm -hmm. uh, um, oh, Stephen Crane, if I remember right, Stephen Crane came down anyway. We actually did a, uh, a session where we brought people in. We had a pros and cons discussion of forming a separate organization. And I remember at the end of the day, we said, well, how many people are interested in doing this? And almost everybody in the audience raised their hand. So we did a poll. Uh, we sent out a, a poll of people across the state saying, would you be interested? And yes, they were. And then we actually... Um, we elected people from around the state to be delegates to a constitutional assembly, uh, which we held in College Station, which was really interesting because College Station, Texas A&M was not really that excited about the idea of forming a separate organization for school psychologists. So we kind of went into no. the area that maybe they weren't too excited about, but we formed the organization and you know have never looked back. It's been really exciting to see. Yeah, at that, at that assembly, there were two people selected from all the regions, and Dr. Carol Booth and I went um, from the Houston region, uh, and Dan had articles and a constitution and so forth from, again, Ohio, but like I said, we didn't really have anything like that, because all we knew, if, if you had come from a state that did not have a school psychology association and come to Texas, all you knew was that you were part of a little division. And that division had maybe, I don't know, 10 sentences or 12 sentences in the whole constitution, you know, of TPA and, and you weren't voting and you weren't, you know, all of those other things. So we started from a template that Dan had and crafted the constitution for TASP. And Texas was the 49th state to have a separate organization for school psychologists, <laughs> little slow learners there. Once again. <laughs> yeah. And then Maine was the last one, just so you know. But it, and we and I have to be fair, I got a lot of support from NASP. Um, they had an organization called, or a group called Assistance to States, you know, made up of senior leadership and stuff. And they provided, you know, copies of their different articles and bylaws and things. And they were very, very supportive in that initial stages of getting us off the ground. And probably the most important thing, Gail, I remember this, it took about two years, but a major thing that happened is when NASP recognized TASP as the state affiliate, um, instead of TPA, Division of School Psychology, right. they said, nope, TASP, you're the, you're the players. And that was really nice. Yeah. Yes, I, I was the director of the School Psychology Division at TPA at that time. And so I know that we had to um, basically give up that affiliation to be able to give it to TASP. And of course, I recommended that we do that because I thought that was a, a, such a better idea. And, um, and so from then on, I think that it really was a good, uh, obviously a good partnership and a good idea. And it wasn't well received, I'm pretty sure. No, it wasn't well received. It was it was fortuitous that I think that I was the director of the school psychology division at that time because I already was wanting to do this in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that was lucky that you were in that position yeah. at that time. Yeah. yeah. And 
And, you know, to their credit, TPA is bigger than school psychology. And so they, they have to cater to their largest membership. And I, and I understand that. And so I, I think you just have to find your special little place for whatever you are. And TASP happens to be that place for school psychologists. And I know we have a lot of uh, conversation that y'all can share, certainly about some of the history about TASP and TPA and some of the, I want to say rumblings, but uh, just uh, something we would have to edit out, I'm afraid. Did you say well, we have six hours for this little podcast? <laughs> well, so let's let's talk a little bit about the the TPA and task piece and how that led to the LSSP itself. Can we y'all have something kind of a short abridged version for that? It really, you need to understand it was not just TPA. There right. were so many factions within the state of Texas. There was a group affectionately referred to the pissed group, the psychologists in the schools of Texas. We referred to them as a pissed off group. Right. Um, but basically they were advocating for independent practice at the master's level. That's what they were advocating for. So you had that taking place. You had the doctor level people who were making lots of money by charging for their signatures for ED evaluations that wanted to maintain their foothold in the schools. You had the people that were newly NCSPs that were advocating for best training standards. And it was a really tumultuous time, quite frankly. Gail mentioned going to the Senate hearings. All those parties showed up at the Senate hearings. And what happened is, to make it a long story short, Senate Bill 1, they said, TEA is going to get out of the business of certification. We're not going to certify anybody, including school psychologists. Well, we went into a panic. It's like, well, de facto, if you do not have anybody certifying, that means that the entry level, you'd have to have a PhD and where there's not enough to go around. So we went and what was Stephanie's last name? Stephanie Korchak, is that right? Something like that? Uh, anyway. It starts, yeah, I, I, it'll come to me. It, it yeah. starts with a K, you're right, yeah. She was the legislative assistant. She really saved school psychology. She was the legislative assistant. Um, for the main senator that uh, had that bill. And she said, this is ridiculous. She saw through the craziness and said, you all need to get together and get your act together and come to some sort of agreement because we're not gonna move forward unless you do that. So we actually invited rep all the presidents and you know past future presidents and it was a group of people all got together and we drafted the language for the law that created the LSSP. And it was a very tumultuous time. Um, I'll just jump to the end here because I remember Sue McCullough and I, Sue mm -hmm. McCullough was at TWU. I think she was the legislative person to task at that point. We went down to Austin because her daughter was there. We stayed at her house and we were walking the halls of the legislature and we were told it was, it was a done deal. It was not gonna happen. It was, it was dead. And the reason it got saved is because of T-Case. The right. Texas Education Special Education people said, there's no way we can afford to have doctoral level people in every single school. We need to approve this legislation. And I was in, I know if you talk about flashball memories, I was in Ohio at my parents' house and the phone rang and they said it was passed. And it was like, woohoo, <laughs> really, nice, really nice. So yeah, in the all of the iterations that eventually ended up with the word LSSP. Because right. I think that's important for people yeah. to, to understand. We are sitting with these groups of people and um, everybody, like Dan said, is just very, very polarized. Oh. 
we have a group of people who are adamant that we are not going to use the word psychologist. We don't care what you call yourselves, but you cannot call yourself a psychologist. Because it's not doctoral level. That's correct. Right. We did not want to keep the word associate because associate school psychologist, psychological associate, it, it just didn't match what we believed was training right. way above the master's degree, way above the 42 hours that was required to be a psych associate without any training in schools or whatever, you know, and so basically we sat there for hours bantering just about what we were going to call it. Um, and we wanted the word psych, well, we wanted school psychologists, but we didn't win on that, obviously. We wanted the word psychology. We definitely wanted the word school. And so we said, well, since, you know, the entry level for training is as a specialist level, that's how we ended up with specialists in school psychology to try to delineate the difference and not continue to use the psych associate or the associate school psych um, issue uh, because we were willing to compromise and not use the word quote psychologist. Although you have to, you have to realize when we first went into that room, Dan and I and the other people, that's what we were shooting for. You know, we wanted the title to be school psychologist. The fact that it did not become that was a compromise. Just like the fact that when the rule was passed, we had that gear of supervision because our doctoral counterparts did not want to give that up. I mean, it was very lucrative, but it's not just because it was lucrative, y'all. They really believe that. Yeah. That some of the comments and some of the ways that, you know, they spoke, they just really believe that as a master's level person, because they wouldn't acknowledge specialists, as, as a master's level person, you had to be under supervision. I mean, think about that. It took the, you know, the LPA group, mm -hmm. what, 35 years to try to even make a dent in that. And so the fact that we were able to make a dent in it much earlier, way back in the beginnings of the LSSP is, is great. And I think, again, the reason we were able to do that is because we had a, an organization and we were very cohesive because we were focused on creating the credential and then helping the board to write the rules. Yeah, that was the next phase is um, very, very active in doing that. There were hearings across the state and a lot of people came out to testify in terms of best practices and the you know 60 hour level of training. And, and we were very, very fortunate, it was Carol, um, Carol Booth, right? Um, we were very fortunate um, to have someone on the board that really no, it was it was Emily, Emily Sutter. Sutter. I'm sorry, Emily, Emily Sutter. Sutter. Who was so instrumental in providing support for school psychology at that stage? It was very very tumultuous. We were it was kind of a compromise to get the LSSP. I do have to say one other thing that at the eleventh hour, everything fell apart in TPA after they agreed to everything and signed yes. off on it. They backed out, and that's what really put things in jeopardy of not passing. So. It's always been a contentious relationship between, unfortunately, and it should not be. Yeah, one of the other, you know, as, as they were writing rules and, and, and so forth and changing legislative 
things. I mean, what happened is, of course, the legislature told TSBP that they had to create rules for an LSSP. In that legislation, though, there was a a, a qualifier, you know, where the LSSP would be a credential that would be able to be used. Well, we didn't want it to be a credential because a credential is like Dan just said, who could do ED assessments? Well, a psychiatrist, a licensed psychologist, this or that or whatever. It didn't really matter um, just as long as you had a credential. So we were going to be in a list with the credentials. And so we fought very much for the word the, and I know it sounds really unusual, but that word. It's a turning point. Yeah. Yes. I mean, that was a turning point when it said you had to have an LSSP and it didn't matter if you had a doctoral degree, if you had a specialist degree, if you had a master's degree with specialist level training, whatever it was, you were going to have to have the LSSP to be able to do the full range of services. And just that one little word. And actually, you know, I think that um, TAPA had some role in that word uh, in terms of helping out. They were very supportive. The Texas Association of Psychological Associates, just for everybody, that was another right. one. Yeah, and TAPA had been an organization and they were much more focused, I guess, and cohesive in their trying to get rid of the supervision rule (laughs) that that kind of coalesced them for years. Uh, But I do recall that that credit, some of that credit for changing the A to the was part of their. Gail, I just want to uh, kind of comment on that for just for the listeners. That is actually uh, the word in uh, section 501 of the Occupations Code, and it's in the Psychologist Licensing Act. And what it refers to when it defines the LSSP, it says the LSSP is the appropriate credential to practice psychology in the schools. Right. Um, and so, for our our the listeners, you know, why are we making such a big deal about that? Because it is. If that word had been is an credential, then that meant that. I could still have, I could have the LP or the LPA and, and serve in this capacity in schools. And that would be inappropriate. Yeah. I think it sounds like a lot, y'all did a lot of hard work to carve out in the important ways, maybe not in the title that we wanted, but certainly that the fact that this is, I think, like you said, Gail, the school psychologist, not the provider of psychology in schools. Right. Um, and so to create that, that avenue, um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, We've reflected a lot on the past, but also flashing forward to more modern history. Back in 2016, uh, y'all wrote an article on the 20th anniversary of the LSSP creation, and y'all talked about how, you know, how I think many of us feel, you know, um, those of us who are on the task board, who do this podcast, both of our listeners, uh, we all think that there's a lot of work to be done. Yes, both of Thank you, both of you. Uh, but there's a lot of work still to be done in growing this role of school psychology. And so what do you think we need to be looking forward to in, in how this role should continue to grow and evolve? I'm still advocating for a title change. I think yeah. I, I, I was trained as a school psychologist. Um, my identity is a school psychologist. Me too. And to be calling myself a licensed specialist in school psychology, it doesn't feel like a title. It feels like a description. So that's something that I still want to see changed in the state. And I was a licensed school psychologist in Ohio at the non-doctoral level. I was able to do things in private practice. I was able to have my own private practice, do assessments, contract with school districts. And 
when I see educational diagnosticians being able to put up a shingle and have a private practice at a lesser level of training and school psychologists not able to do that, I still would like to see that. That's my fantasy for the state of Texas. Although, you know, that monumental when TSB allowed us to contract. Yes. You know, allowed an LSSP to actually contract with a school district and not have to be, quote, employed full time. So that was monumental and, and a push. I, I certainly, again, since we know why we made the compromise, yeah. we, we've gotten rid of one of the other compromises, which was that full year of supervision. So that's gone thanks to TSBEP. And of course, Donna Black had a big role uh, when she was on the board. I think still need to look at title change that we need to, we need to be school psychologists like everybody else in the country. I also think there's another big issue that needs to be looked at. And that is we did win a seat on the TSBP. Yes. But we didn't really win a seat. Yeah, we didn't really win the seat because it just meant that you had an LSSP. It didn't mean that that's all you had was an LSSP. And so I, we still don't have a fully designated person. And we make up 35%, at least 35% of licensees in the state. It may be more than that now. I don't know exactly, but it was 35% you know, a few years ago. Um, and so even on that board, and I know that it's changed now, we have the Behavioral Health Council and so forth and so on. But if anybody's ever been to a TSBP board meeting, which I know all of y'all have, um, you know, we don't have a big voice on there. I mean, Donna was our voice and Donna was on the board because she had an LSSP, but she had an LPA. Right. So it wasn't, it's not the same. We need another seat on that board. It's like taxation without representation. I mean, yes. you really need to have um, a representative of school psychology there. I agree. Should, should we throw our assessment materials into the Gulf of Mexico in protest? Is, is that what you're advocating, Dan? <laughs> no. Well, hey, we have the beach house for it. Come on down. <laughs> so, so I agree with everything Dan and Gail just said. At a at an extremely high level, you know they're up there in the brain sphere up there. <laughs> um, when you ask that question, for me, I thought about like boots on the ground kind of answer in terms of what do I want to see happening with school psychology. I want us to really, and I'm going to use the word fight hard, and I don't. I am very much about collaboration. I'm very much about building relationships. So I'm going to, I'm going to use that word, but I don't really mean it in the sense of fight, but I think we need to really be showing schools our expanded skills uh, beyond either just assessment or whatever, whatever role they have it, us in, because in Texas, the role of a school psychologist looks very de different depending on the school district that they're in. You know, they have their own models. And so just continuing to, number one, build our skills, but then also show how we can contribute to that school district by helping at the systems level, whether that's at the campus or the district level in leadership, um, uh, uh, showing our uh, SEL, uh, social emotional learning, our mental health skills, um, even writing um, curricula, 
kinds of opportunities that I, I think just like when we first started in Texas and they were used to a clinical model, I don't think they've even seen all of what we can provide. And sometimes we don't, we don't venture into those things because nobody's asked us to. So volunteer, get out there and say, you know what, I'd love to be on that, that team. I'd love to be in that meeting. And it's really important that we are seen as collaborative and we appreciate, we have lots of skills to bring to the table, but we also appreciate the skills that other people bring to the table. We appreciate that teacher's knowledge. We appreciate that diagnostician's knowledge. You know, the, the, speech language pathologist, the parent, whoever is, whomever is at the table, because if we want to be appreciated, we need to also recognize others' um, areas of skills as well. I think that's a great point, Dr. Gates. And I think that's one of the things I've always said. I, I say, I think one of the big losses for our schools sometimes is that we don't have um, any LSSP principals. Yes. Um, we don't have any people. Few. Who are, yeah. yeah it, it's very rare. I've, I've run yeah. into a couple of unicorns here and there, but by and large, we don't have people who were LSSPs go on to become administrators. And there's some logistical hurdles with that. I understand, but the training and background that systems change that you mentioned would be such a valuable skill set for some admit to have see that as administrators in our schools. Yeah. You know, I don't know what it looks like across the state, but here in the Houston area, we've had a number of LSSPs go on to be special ed directors. And certainly program coordinators and things like that. So that's exciting. Uh, you know, Ginger, I agree with you wholeheartedly. But the thing that's so frustrating is early on in my career, I was writing about the shortage of school psychologists. And I feel like sometimes I pick up the communique and I feel like I'm in a time warp because I'm reading the same things we talked about back in the 19, early 90s. So it's hard to do role expansion when there are certain legal things that we're required to do. And um, I often give the analogy that um, I would lay awake at night sometimes saying, am I training my people the best way I can to go out and be good practitioners? Because the reality is we could actually have an entire master's or specialist degree in autism assessment. We could have an entire sure. specialist degree in early childhood education or crisis intervention, list goes on and on. It's so hard now to train people as generalists when the information explosion is every single area we touch as school psychologists, there's so much information. So I think that I'm, I'm hopeful that things like, quite frankly, maybe COVID-19 and because kids coming back to school, maybe giving more funding to hire school psychologists, and the crisis with shootings in the school, maybe there'll be more emphasis on mental health types of things and get more people trained because that's really what we need to be able to do. More boots on the ground, as you say, Ginger. Um, School's like such a, a, a vast field. It is. You know, we do, you know, you know, it's like the, the CIA, the consultation, the intervention and the assessment, you know, and it's just a huge uh, field that, you know, certainly I'm an assessment person. I do not want to give up my assessment role. No, That's the role that I choose to be in. It's the role that I really want to do. You know, it's funny, Ginger and I trained at the University of Southern Mississippi going through the same doctoral program. Um, and she's not an assessment person. Mm. You know, she's an intervention consultation person and assessment is last, you know, on her list. And so I do think because I hate writing reports, <laughs> don't we all? Don't we? All? But you know, I think that we have 
this this huge you know we have a field that allows people to kind of get into certain areas and become you know proficient at those particular areas um, and so we surely don't want to give up that role for other roles but I want us to have a, a well, you know, what I want to do is very similar to what Dan has said. I want the person that I train to be well-versed in all of the roles. I want them to be able to do consultation, sit with groups of people, even at higher levels like systems level and so forth. I want them to be able to collaborate and problem solve. I also want them to be able to do direct intervention with kids. You know, and then I certainly want them to be able to assess, diagnose, and hopefully make some decent recommendations and then work with the school to carry those out. Um, and I think that most of our training programs, that's exactly what they want to do. They want to do this. What happens, though, is they graduate, they get out in the schools, and that's not necessarily what we see. And so we've got to have people in leadership roles to have a model that allows that to happen. Yeah. yeah. You know, when Ginger was director of a, of a school district, you know, a special ed, you know, special ed director of a school district, then she can expand the roles for her LSSPs and so forth and so on. But if you have somebody who doesn't have that background mm -hmm. or knowledge, you're not going to, you're going to meet with some resistance. I could uh, I could sit here and listen to you guys all day talk about <laughs> these things and and hear let's experiences. <laughs> let's do that and I've, and I've got a ton of questions but I, I do want to as we kind of move towards closure um, just give you give you one for all uh, each of you to respond to and that's really as we turn our attention forward to this next generation of budding Texas school psychologists, how, how would you, what would you like to do to, to encourage them for this next wave um, of practice? What kind of advice would you give them? I think Ginger touched on it. And I think the hardest thing is I was in academia for such a long period of time. I saw things change over time and the populations that we serve changed over time. Um, a lot more People are interested in, you know, uh, getting that A and not necessarily obtaining the skills or whatever. But the bottom line is we've got to encourage volunteerism. We've got mm -hmm. to sort of like what Ginger said, you can't hide your light under the bushel. You've got to be able to volunteer for community boards. You got to volunteer for parent trainings. You just don't go in. The school psychology should not be an eight to four type of job or whatever it is. You have to find ways to impact upon your community. And I think we would not be sitting here if we had not taken that step. I would not know Gail and Ginger. I would not know so many people that I knew from across the state and just develop friendships and colleagues that were, you know, so valuable to enhance my life. And I think that's something I would really encourage people to do, find ways to give back to the profession. I think our, our graduates and beginning career people, uh, again, I certainly believe they have to have well-developed skills, as I said, and be well-versed in, in many skills. But I would like to see them get involved in our professional organizations, get involved in TASP, get involved in NASP. You know, when, when we created TASP, um, it was all volunteer, you know, we went places, we did things, never got reimbursed for anything. You know, there was nothing like that. There, you know, it was it was this cohesive group of people that really 
had professional enhancement, professional development as the, the goal. And although we might have disagreed on some nuances and so forth, everything ended up being, being great. But I would not know hardly anybody either, like Dan said, if I had not been involved in TASP, uh, go to our professional meetings. I'm, you know, I really would wish we'd have more people at our task conferences, uh, you know, things of that nature uh, that, that our younger generation may not have, um, they may not have as much motivation to do. And a lot of it's because they are busy and they're doing many other things. So professional organizations, leadership positions, all of those things I think are important. Our first thing. task board meetings were in people's houses. Yeah, oh we, yeah. My living room, yes. Your <laughs> living room, that's right. We, we had a board meeting. We actually had a meeting at Jean Tannis's house. I don't know if you remember that, Dan, but she didn't even have furniture. Yeah. They, they, had just, <laughs> they had just moved into their house and you know it was in the Austin area. And so we all went to her house to have it. Uh, and we all, we sat on the floor. I mean, they, you know, their furniture hadn't even arrived from wherever it was they were doing. So we had some pretty unique experiences. I just say it's very exciting. That was very exciting. That's the, you can't re recreate that. Um, you know, the enthusiasm, the excitement and building something from scratch. One last thing I'll say, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to Ginger. And that is people have, young people have got to be committed to lifelong learning. Um, I see so often in the field where people get stuck in a groove, where they walk out of their office with the same test kit, the same for every single child yeah. or whatever. And if you don't have the cognitive flexibility and that thirst for knowledge, because our field is changing so rapidly on a daily basis, you're going to be you're going to be outdated as soon as you graduate from a specialist program. So as you, you automatically are going to be outdated. So you have to be committed to lifelong learning and task plays a major role in that. Mm -hmm. um, well, so uh, ditto to both of these extremely bright people. I agree with everything you said. I have two more things to give advice to the new LSSP. And one of them is on the first day you're employed, open a 403B and have the contributions <laughs> automatically <laughs> withdrawn and deposited into that. As a retired person now, I realize how important that is. And I am so sorry that I didn't follow my father's advice way back 38 years ago when, when it would have made a whole lot more difference. I didn't figure that out till, you know, till the end of my career. And the second thing is, and this is just really important and everybody, every one of y'all is gonna agree with me on this, is the minute you walk in that school, develop relationships with the school secretary and the janitor because they are the people who own the power in the building and you can get anything done as long as you're their best friend. You can get access to any room. You want that's right. You need, that's, which is really important sometimes. That's And all the secrets. The secretary uh -huh, yes. has all the secrets and she controls your box and what goes in it and doesn't go in it. Absolutely. <laughs> Yes. That's perfect. That is such practical advice. <laughs> Rely on me to be practical. They can be the brains. I'm going to be practical. Thank you all for taking some time for uh, for us. And, and thank you for being um, the pioneers that you have been uh, in our field and in our state. Thank you for birthing TASP, for birthing this license, um, for, uh, for charting the way. Um, we really appreciate you.
Yes, greatly appreciated. And and while we appreciate you, we're not we're gonna try and, and scare you off here, but we do have our closing quiz. Um, and we're gonna move into our lightning round. Don't worry, there are no wrong answers. This is it's the Rorschach. Um, but about y'all. <laughs> yeah, but y'all um, will be interpreting that Rorschach. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll we'll get feedback from both our listeners about what they think. <laughs> All right. Uh, so what, these are just quick questions just about y'all, just the first answer that comes to your mind. So we will kind of rotate through um, for each of y'all. And so just the first thing you get, um, what it, for Dr. Miller, why don't you start us off here? What is your go-to snack? Popcorn. Popcorn, good answer. Dr. Jeremy? Chips. Chips. And Dr. Gates? Blue Bell Millennium Crunch. That's a that's a Texas answer there. <laughs> Dr. Gates wins. Uh, Yay! It's, it's not a competition. Okay. It's not uh, a competition, but I win. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Sheremy, what's an all-time favorite movie? I like, well, I don't know that I have an all-time favorite, but I like any kind of like psychological thriller kind of movie, but no horror mm -hmm. and no slapstick. So just, you know, detective movies, all those kind of things. That's gotcha. what I like. Okay, great. Uh, Dr. Gates? Now, you are asking a girl from Natchitoches, Louisiana, so you know I'm going to have to say Steel Magnolias, where it was <laughs> filmed and the playwright was raised. So Steel Magnolias, absolutely. Great answer, great answer. And Dr. Miller? I'm a traditionalist. I'll say Casablanca. Casablanca. That's a good oh, movie. Good movie. Interesting. Yes. All right, uh, Dr. Gates, why don't you start us off? Uh, what is a TV show that you'd recommend or a show that you will binge or watch whenever you get oh, the chance? Oh, now see, this is gonna really make me feel old, but I love CBS Sunday morning. It is like going <laughs> to church for me every <laughs> Sunday morning. So I, I just love it and give it a try. All right, great. Dr. Miller? I, I like Young Sheldon. Young Sheldon? <laughs> oh. <Yes. laughs> Case it study. doesn't surprise me. Yeah. And Dr. Sheremy. <laughs> well, again, you know, I, I like crime movies like CSI and Law and Order and so mm -hmm. forth. But one of my best sitcoms was Golden Girls. Golden Girls. Oh, excellent. Yeah. They, they just dealt with all kind of topics on there. And it's just, uh, you know, even if you watch it today, it's pretty timely. Now, Gail, you forgot Monk. Well, oh. yeah, but that's like my detective. Yeah. Thing. She's addicted yeah, to Monk. Monk. Yeah, I like Monk. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and where my Dr. Miller, uh, what is your favorite assessment to give? Probably the Nepsi. The Nepsi? Okay. Dr. Sheremy? Whisk five. Whisk five. And, I'm a Whisk five person. And Dr. Gates? <laughs> You're asking a non-assessment person this <laughs> question. Um, you know, I probably am pretty old school. The, any, the Wexler. Now, it was Whisk R back when I was in the day that I was training, and and the and the uh, Stanford Binet um, LM version. I know that does date me, but uh, you know I I was pretty comfortable with those. All right, Doctor Sheremy, um, is it coffee or tea? And then what's your order? Coffee, and I like a latte, just a regular latte. Just a regular latte. Okay, great, Doctor Gates. Oh, now my favorite would be Cafe Du Mans, um, Cafe LA. It's really plugging Louisiana here. That's yeah. right. I am. Do you, you see a theme here? Yes. Dr. Miller? Believe it or not, I've made it through life without drinking any coffee or tea. Oh, oh no. my goodness. Does that, mean you drink, does that mean you drink a lot of beer? 
No. <laughs> no, I drink beer either. Um, <laughs> if I had to drink something, it would be a Diet Dr. Pepper. So. Diet Dr. Ah, Pepper. Okay. okay. So he, Texas, he gets the answer. caffeine. He gets yes. the caffeine. Okay. Yeah. Hey, you Texas, should talk. Louisiana thing going on here. That's right. You should talk to the Dr. Pepper people and see if they could underwrite the cost of this presentation. <laughs> hey. Ooh, there we go. Yeah. Good sponsorship. All right. Uh, Dr. Gates, what Uh-oh. is an unusual or fun fact about yourself? Oh, my Lord, that can be said on public podcasts. Yes. I was kicked out of kindergarten because I called one of my friends a pissant. And, <laughs> and in my defense, I just want you to know that in my family, that was a term of endearment. My father wow. called me his little pissant. So he had to go explain to the teacher what I thought that it meant. And so I got back into kindergarten. Good. I'm glad you made it back to kindergarten. I am too. Because look they, where look where it took me. And yeah. they didn't have to have a manifestation determination. That's, <laughs> That's thank right. goodness. Thank goodness that we didn't have these evaluations back then. Yeah. No, no, thank goodness we didn't have cameras in our phones back then. <laughs> oh my gosh. I would definitely have been in trouble. I would not have been licensed to this date, just so you know. <laughs> Dr. Miller, unusual or fun fact about yourself? Back to my answer about what my favorite movie is, Casablanca. My father was a film critic as well as a newspaper author. So um, I went to see every single movie growing up. So that's why I like Casablanca. Makes sense. Wow. Cool. Dr. Jeremy. Wow. I don't know that there's such a thing, but I'll go with what I'll go on the same theme as Ginger did in terms of I was suspended from school uh, in high school because we were protesting some rule or regulation that our school was doing. And so we decided to get in our cars and leave and go for lunch uh, at a local McDonald's or something of that nature. So I I was pretty rebellious back then. You're you're advocating for systems change. Um, (laughs) Unfortunately, unfortunately it was my system that changed and not that system that changed. Now have another corporate sponsor, McDonald's. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Now, what she what she's not saying is that there was no McDonald's in Cutoff, Louisiana. No, I, it was, I don't even <laughs> know. Had, it was some little hamburger place. It had to yeah. be a local hamburger place. What you also don't know about her is she loves convertible sports cars, and oh, early on she always had a little. Uh, she had a Fiat X19 in the early days, convertible targa roof. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. All right, is and she, our is final... she driving one now. Uh, she's graduated to a Lexus sedan now, (laughs) but that's another corporate sponsor for you. (laughs) All right. And then our final question, Dr. Miller, want to start off other than family, uh, what sparks joy in your life? Two G's, um, golf and gardening. I like working outside in the garden and I like golf. Excellent. Excellent. Dr. Jeremy. My dog. Dog. You're saying apart from family, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, we'll let the dog slide. That, okay. That's okay. I have <laughs> friends, my dog, and actually I professional development, creating workshops, working with, you know, consulting with school districts and people across. I, I still um, certainly have joy from that. Good. Good. And Dr. Gates. Besides eating millennium crunch. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I have, I, I know you took that option away from us, but I really have to say, and again, in this point in my life, I'm appreciating it even more, is that time with family and friends that um, 
you just can't get back, you know, and, and so much of our professional lives, we didn't give enough attention to that family and friends and relaxation part. And, and so I'm really appreciating that and, and realizing I should have done more of it early on. It, it brings me peace. And of course, the beach, be, having a, a house on the beach certainly does as well. Yeah. All right. Those are perfect answers all around. Perfect. Uh, we'll Y'all aren't going to answer. Y'all aren't going to at least answer the last one or something. Y'all, as the host, y'all aren't going to answer a couple for us. Um, I could say, let's see. Um, my unusual fact, if you if I have to share with y'all uh, here, is that I was a film and theater major to start um, college. I did not end up there. Obviously, I ended up with the worthless psychology degree that Dr. Miller mentioned earlier. Um, <laughs> But I did start out and was in a, a award-winning student film in a Houston film festival. Wow! Um, when really? I, I was at the very beginning of my my education, my post-secondary education. How cool is that? That's why you're running our podcast today. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Brooke, you want to answer one for our? Sure, I'll guests? do. I'll do the same one. Um, so, uh, young, uh, early high school, I wanted to be a rapper. <laughs> and um, and I had vanity license plates that said "Yo BTR." That's <laughs> so yeah, that was me. <laughs> All right, I don't think there's a better way to close. The show. Wow! Wow! Thank you so much, Dr. Miller, Dr. Sheremy, Dr. Gates. Uh, Y'all have all been wonderful, not just today, but in your. The great body of your careers that y'all have have given to our field, um, and the things you continue to do for our field. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, and thank you for carrying thank on the you. torch. Yes. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, that's going to do it for our episode today. Uh, thank you to all of our listeners. I hope you enjoyed the Task Talks podcast with our legends. Uh, stay tuned for more episodes featuring some more legends of school psychology. And be sure to connect with us on social media and follow the official Task account for, on Facebook and Instagram. And until the next time, make great choices. Bye.